I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is episode 28 of The Milkman of St. Gaff's, an absurdist horror podcast. I'd like to thank some new patrons. Feeder Goldfish, Fly Sprayer. Sasha Gorel, Department of Lactic Affairs, Radio Clerk. Carl, Department of Lactic Affairs, Radio Clerk. Eli Pollard, Fly Sprayer. Thank you very much for all your support. It really means a lot. This episode is called, sadly, The End. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gaffs, starring Howie the Milkman. I know what you're probably thinking. Old Howie's gotten himself into a pickle again, but he'll get out of it. Maybe he'll have one of his spells and see some strange things. And maybe he'll even get hurt. But one way or another, he'll be fine. But this time, I wasn't. Like I said, I got tangled up in the ropes with the drowning cows. The water was turning red, and it was just a mass of kicking legs and awful cow faces. Now... As you know, I've had my episodes where I'm underwater, and they've been pretty scary. But in those, I could somehow breathe, even though there were horrible bogariches chasing me, or maybe my dead dad was floating around with no teeth. But this was in some ways worse. The rope I was tangled in, after a lot of kicking and thrashing, was no longer attached to a cow but it was still attached to a cinder block, and the cinder block was, of course, sinking towards the bottom. It was pulling me down, deeper and deeper. At first I tried to get the rope off my leg, but I just couldn't. I fought, but my arms and legs very quickly went numb in the frigid water, 
and they felt like wet cement, and they wouldn't move. My lungs were burning from holding my breath, and I could feel the weight of the sea bearing down on my puny body. And then, it was almost like a trick of the brain. In a split second, I convinced myself that this wasn't real, and that I'd be fine if I just took a breath. And that split second was all it took for me to give up and breathe in. And then, the feeling, more intense than anything I'd ever felt, the panic of feeling the dirty salt water course through my lungs, my chest scorching. The world and the universe seemed to contract into a point, and in that point, my eyes no longer saw what was in front of me. I saw me as a baby on some grimy brown carpet, then eating some green stuff off a spoon, looking in awe at a tree as a young boy. A thousand other images were all there at the same time. My awful teacher, the girl with the hair like a bowl smiling at me with her arms crossed behind her back. All the way up to watching lightning course across the sky over the sea from the coast road on St. Gaff's. And then, somehow, the visions all stopped. I felt like my eyes were wider and whiter than they'd ever been. And I was aware of my body, my eyes frozen open and white with terror and not moving at all. My mouth was open, but I couldn't move it. And I knew that right then, I was dying. I saw, out of my dying eyes, the dark shapes of the cows swimming off, the bottom of the raft and the rowboat so far up above me through the murky water, the weeds stretching up above me. I observed it all without understanding. I just watched with growing quiet as it all went darker and darker. And then, just like everyone says, there was the hazy green light, sort of like if you were in a bathroom drain, looking up through the hole full of old bath water. I swam up there and pulled myself through. I've heard, like probably you have, that you're supposed to feel calm and peaceful at this point. Like you just don't care anymore about all the things back home and the people who might still need you around. But it wasn't really like that. I felt a sort of queasy dread, like I was in the most trouble I'd ever been in in my life. It was calm in a way, but it was like the calm of resignation when you just have to accept that you've lost and you've run out of chances. What I saw on the other side of the drain hole was more of a feeling than anything you could see with your eyes. It was the feeling of a thousand men pulling on ropes in pitch blackness in the coldest ocean that's ever been. Slowly, slowly, they pulled the thing over, the ice cracking beneath them, not knowing when it might give way. Some struggles you can't understand and won't overcome. A thousand spindles spinning needlessly in the dark. A thousand women hunched over their looms, 
fighting to weave cloth to shield themselves against the cold that's already piercing their joints and aching in their legs. But there was a feeling of moving, and slowly the fires of a thousand hearths greeted a dull, aching, ochre dawn. The uncanny morning light took my hand and pulled me inside, and from the warm hand that held mine, some kind of sense returned to me, like a spring thaw, running up my arms and across my chest, and all through the rest of me. Until I saw that I was standing and looking into the shining countenance of St. Gaff himself, the sentinel of the next world, he smiled balefully at me. Someone must have slandered you, my son. The cook should have brought your breakfast by now. It's after eight o'clock. And as you see, there is no one here and no breakfast. You might try to ring the bell, but I'm afraid that at this hour, the lady has gone home. I began to see what was around me. I was sitting now on a straw mattress. The saint sat beside me. It was a small room with smooth beige walls. I stood up and the ceiling was too low for me to stand up all the way. Why don't I get to have any breakfast? You people really are such a pain. As I said, you've missed breakfast. Lunch should be at 11.30. I shall be your guide here, but only until 8.45. Your trial will begin at 9 o'clock, sharp. My trial? A flash of worry crossed his face. You are Howie Coxwell, are you not? Of course. He looked relieved. Don't tell me you thought you'd get away scot-free. I looked out the window, hunching over. The ground was orange, and there were municipal-type buildings with arches and fountains. A locomotive trundled along in the distance with cotton ball smoke trailing behind. Two men spoke conspiratorially just outside. A milky white river ran through the town center, and there was a statue of a bricklayer raising his trowel up to the heavens. Is this the Isle of the Blessed? The saint chuckled to himself. <laughs> you are in the land of Eugalopos. This is the district of Ferlumdet. And I have to go to a trial? Yes. You see that building there with the arches? You're supposed to be there at nine sharp. Or what? Well, as our blessed Savior said, let's cross that kettle of fish when we come to it. Is that river really full of milk? Am I imagining things? St. Gaff became quite solemn. The milkmen, they do have their secrets. Shortly after that, St. Gaff left. I rang the bell on the wall, but the saint was right. The cook must have gone home because no one answered. It was annoying because I was getting hungry. I left my room, walked down the corridor, and out into the square. There was no sun, even though it was light out and there were no clouds. I walked around a bit. But all the men in their sharp suits just stared at me when I tried to ask what time it was. 
There weren't any shops, not that I had any money, and the only door I could see was the door to the court. I thought that it would be great to tell Stormy all about this place and this crazy adventure, but then I remembered that I was dead, and that Stormy was shacked up with that miserable peckerhead McMurdle. I made myself a promise that if I could go back as a ghost or something, I'd haunt the hell out of that guy. And then I thought I could maybe haunt Stormy a bit too, but not in a creepy or scary way. I'd just hang around quietly while she got undressed. There's always a silver lining to everything, it seems. But like I said, I was getting hungry and bored and I had no idea what time it was. So I just went back to my room and laid down on the mattress. Every once in a while, I rang the bell, but no one came in. Then, I broke out in a cold sweat. How was I supposed to know when nine o'clock was? Maybe it was past nine right now. I decided that this trial was probably the most important part of my life, and that the smart thing would be to just go to the court and wait for it to open. So I ran out and got to the door. But no one was around except a guard. I asked him what time it was. I don't know. Can I go in? I have a case this morning. Perhaps, but not right now. Why not? He glared at me. Try to enter if you like, but I am strong and fast. I will chase you. I didn't know what to say. A few men in suits came by. They (laughs) joked with the doorkeeper and he let them in. When I tried to get a look past the door, he slammed it shut in my face. Why are you letting all those guys in but not me? I have a case this morning. Probably right now. You should have come earlier. You would have let me in if I'd come earlier? No. Then why should I have come earlier? He looked me over. You're a milkman. Right? Your job in customer service has left you jaded, intolerant. Why don't you come back when you're feeling more at ease with your situation? I was getting really tired of the guy, and I remembered that I was already dead, so I just walked up to the door, opened it, and went in. He just glared at me but didn't do anything. Not much of a doorman at all, it turned out. I was in a long stone hallway, and the ceiling was so high I couldn't see it. There was no one around except a policeman or security guard standing outside a door. I ran to him. He seemed to be just dozing there. I have a case and I don't know what room it's in. Name? Howie Coxwell. His eyes woke up a bit. Coxwell, you're late. In there. He pointed to the door behind him. I opened it and went in. The courtroom was huge. There must have been a hundred people sitting on benches. They all turned and looked at me. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, but a thin man near the front waved me to him. He looked very unhappy. The court looked like the pictures I'd seen. There was a woman sharpening knives off to one side. A judge with a hood over his face sat on a tall pulpit up front and some other people were sitting around him writing things down. There was a desk for me, and the guy I guessed was my lawyer, and another desk for the other lawyer, who was shuffling and playing around with a deck of cards. I sat down beside my lawyer. Oh, why did you have to get here late? Oh, 
But before I could answer, the judge spoke up. And you call yourself a milkman. Do you have any idea what time it is? The rest of the morning was taken up with entering various documents into evidence. It sounded like it was going to be a long, complicated trial, and I was really surprised at how many papers they had. Go fish. Hit me. Hit me. Submarine. When it was lunchtime, everyone just stayed where they were. Most took water bottles and sandwiches wrapped in oil paper out and ate in silence. And I had no sandwich. I had no water. So I just sat and tried not to look too hard at any one of the eating crowd. They munched and munched. The knife sharpener stopped sharpening and ate too. And the annoying lawyer on the other side finally put down his annoying cards and focused on what looked like a roast beef sandwich. I could smell the swirling odors. Roast beef, like I said, turkey, tuna, tea, egg salad, all mixing together in a sordid miasma of brown paper bags and small, hopeless plans. I could have sworn that I smelled peanut butter and jam, or maybe, as ungodly as it seems, peanut butter and banana, and it was like a slap in the face. To sit there while someone was just eating a peanut butter sandwich while the whole fate of my entire soul for the rest of eternity was being decided, it made me feel just small. A bell rang somewhere and all of us knew that the time for eating was over. It was now time for the arguments. My lawyer stood up. Oh, your honor, my client here, sitting there, had undoubtedly been a strict adherent of the Lex Lexissimus Lactinatorius. His teeth were brushed by himself. He went on and on about my personal hygiene routine, which I'd never thought would carry any weight in determining my future. And then he went on about a bunch of other stuff I couldn't really follow. Then the prosecutor lawyer stood up and pointed at me. Premeditated gross obloquy, first degree. Howie Coxwell is a creature of pure evil. Instead of being a normal boy and doing well at school, he chose, of his own free volition, mind you, to stir up mischief among the living. Many of you might remember that only a few weeks ago, our dear friend, the mayor of Caberbridge, on one of his usual sojourns to the lands of the living, was, in the innocent form of a muskrat, run down mercilessly by this one. I looked over at the jury and they were stone cold. The arguments didn't seem to have swayed them at all. After a while, he sat down again and picked up his cards. My lawyer tried to explain that I had poor eyesight and that on Earth, it's normal to run over whatever wildlife wanders onto the roads. But all I could think about was the irritating noise the other lawyer was making with the cards. I looked over, giving him one of those do-you-mind looks, but he just smiled and winked at me. I turned away and tried to focus on the knife sharpener instead. She at least kept her head down and focused on her work, but it was no use. All I could hear was flip, flip, flip. Was he playing a game? Just shuffling the cards for absolutely no reason at all? Was he just bored to death and couldn't concentrate on the fate of my everlasting soul? I just couldn't stand it anymore and I stood up and shouted, Will you stop shuffling those goddamned cards? There were some gasps. My lawyer turned to me, shocked. Oh, no. The judge shouted, There will be no outburst in this courtroom. 
The lawyer just kept smiling at me and flipping his stupid cards around until all of a sudden he stopped. Everyone in the room felt the door open. It's like the temperature in the room changed. We all turned to look, but we all somehow knew, even before looking, that some profound presence had altered the balance of the room. He was a small, tidy man with gold-rimmed spectacles. When I saw them, I almost doubled over. I'd seen these glasses before, watching me. I felt my soul getting thin and wispy when he looked at me with a faint smile, like I might blow away. I knew that he knew everything about me already, and that he knew that I knew that, and that I knew nothing whatsoever about him. And for a second, it was like there was just me and him in the room. Then the sound came back to my ears, and I heard a hundred whispers from the other court dwellers. Stan, 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 Stan. Stan Stan walked down the middle of the aisle, smiling in a slightly disgusted way at me, like he already knew I hadn't brushed my teeth for days. He walked right up to the other lawyer, who stood up and dropped his stupid cards all over the floor. Stan said something to the other lawyer that no one could hear except the peckerhead lawyer. And as Stan spoke, the lawyer looked at me, his eyes getting bigger and happier, and a goofball smile crossing against his face. Then Stan had a seat on a bench, and everyone slid away from him. The other lawyer raised his finger in the air and announced, Your Honor, the prosecution would like to change the charges against Mr. Coxwell to remorseless ingratitude. He has work left undone. My lawyer looked at me and went pale. Bring out the evidence box. There were murmurs in the court. The clerk got up and left, then returned a moment later, pushing a stand on rolling wheels with a box on top. It was strange. It looked like it was made of wood, but there were buttons on the front and most of the front was made of glass. The evidence, the lawyer cried. And then one of the strangest things I've ever seen happened. The other lawyer pushed a button and then, in front of this big crowd, a bunch of episodes from my life appeared on the glass. It started with me falling in the water with all the cows off the coast of Afterglay. To be honest, it looked a bit funny. But the lawyer pressed a button, and there was a blur and a bunch of lines, and there was me sleeping in my room with a little picture of the whale on the wall. Then he pushed the button for a long time, and when he stopped, there was me playing in the garbage bin close to my house as a child. Then he went back further and exclaimed with a finger in the air, Here we are. On the screen, I was a baby, and I was just a couple of weeks old, sitting on a bench with my mother. It was misty and cold and the pine trees, and there was a stone fountain, but I was warm there, wrapped up in a blanket. And for the first time I could see, and I recognized my mother's face, and I smiled, and she smiled back. And I knew that smell and that warmth were from her, But I could see in my mother's eyes that she was tired, and I could see that she was so sad. So I giggled, and she giggled, and somewhere deep inside me, I promised that I would make her happy. Aha! The stupid pecker had shouted, snapping me out of those ancient memories. 
Then he pointed his finger at me. That child made a promise. And I will show renewed that promise again and again until his evil nature made itself as plain as plain could be. Now, if this were just some ordinary child laughing and smiling at his mother, I'd never consider him capable of a binding contract. But this young fellow, this one, as you know, was no babe in the woods. He was a seeker through and through. He knew what he was doing. And has he made her happy? And he pushed a button and the picture moved forward to me playing with some blocks and a mechanical egg beater on the floor one evening. I made little towers of blocks and then knocked them down with the egg beater. But my mom was just smoking and looking out the window and the sun was going down over the row houses. Is that the behavior of a man who had pledged his life to making his mother happy? A big no went up in the crowd. Even though a voice in the back of my mind said, I was just playing with my blocks. And where is his mother now? He pushed more buttons and there was my mom, old and gray, sitting in the same chair, looking out the same window, smoking, the cigarette shaking a bit in her fingers. And what, pray tell, did Mrs. Coxwell do for her ingrate son? And he fiddled with the box again and there was me at my own birthday party with a pile of presents and a magician doing magic tricks and lots of kids and balloons and cake? She organized birthday parties? Now I have to tell you, everything up to this point I sort of remembered, of the parts when I was old enough to remember at least, but this birthday party, I didn't remember at all, and I'm pretty sure I never had any of the presents I watched myself opening. Lullabies? And there was my mom singing to me the nicest song you ever heard, which was also strange since I don't remember ever hearing my mom singing to me or anyone else. As similar images flashed by, helping me up onto a pony, me coming home crying and her looking concerned and wiping my tears, and then cracking a joke that made me laugh and feel better, I began to wonder, had I been totally wrong about my mother all these years? Did I push all those memories out of my mind? And why? Maybe I really was a total ingrate. I could feel tears welling up and I fought to hold them back and wiped my eyes with the sleeve of my uniform. The lawyer pointed at me again. You see how his own body accuses him, rebelling against his fetid mind. And then with a grandiose flourish, he turned off the box. Lads and lasses of the jury, you cannot possibly contemplate allowing this person to stay anywhere in our realms, let alone allow him to enjoy himself on the Isle of the Blessed. He has a contract incomplete and must walk the earth until it is completed. He looked back at the man called Stan and winked. The judge stood up in his pulpit and proclaimed, If any man have aught to say of this, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. The lawyers and the judge then went into a huddle, and when they broke up, my lawyer walked back to me looking very pale and afraid. And then the judge bellowed, Howie Coxwell, you have been found to be in breach of contract. You are hereby banished from these realms, and you are banished forever. Never shall you be admitted to the Isle of the Blessed again. You are further sentenced to return and spend the rest of your days making amends for your sin. Then... The knife sharpener got up and walked towards me, an evil grin spreading across her face. 
And I won't tell you what the knife sharpener did, but it was not very nice at all. And just like that, there was a flash. The first thing I was aware of was how cold I was, freezing, wet. The sand beneath me, like a slab of ice under a cadaver. My legs ached, but I knew somehow that I wasn't a cadaver. I smelled the sea, rotting kelp, horse manure. I never noticed before how strange it is that there are seasons. No one but the scientists really understand why it's cold and then it's hot and then it's cold again. The whole time I'd been in the courtroom in Eugalopos, I hadn't noticed anything at all about the temperature of my body. For the rest of my life after this, whenever it was cold and damp, my legs would ache and get stiff. And I complained about it, but secretly, in my own head, I enjoyed the feeling because I knew that whenever I felt cold and damp, and my old milkman's legs ached, it meant that I was alive. And I knew at this moment that once again, inexplicably, I was alive. Alive. The sun was there in the sky, and only slowly could I open my eyes. I saw the grains of sand, up close like I'd never seen them before, differently colored little stones. Then I felt the sea air in my lungs, and I took a deep breath like a baby that just got born. I wanted to swallow every bit of the air around me after being dead and drowned for so long. Then I noticed that my limbs were still there, and I pushed myself up. The rowboat was there. I was somewhere, but not St. Gaff's. It was just a long bank of sand, a strip of an island, just sand and some grass, a long sliver of sand in the sea, and there, in front of me, staring at me, was a wild horse. I stood up finally, and that's all there was here. Me, my boat, the sea, the sun, sand, grass, and a herd of wild horses galloping. 